I'm David Marcus, host of Drinks with the Deal, and today our guest is Cal Smith, the co-head of M&A at King & Spalding. Cal, thanks for joining us today. David, great pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. We're going to talk about several things on today's podcast. First of all, your background, what you learned from growing up with parents who had a small business, how you got into the law initially, your time as an in-house lawyer at Georgia Pacific, what you learned there, a little bit about return to the office, and then finally, what you do to decompress from work. So with that, tell us a little bit about yourself, how you grew up and got into the law. Well, David, it is a bit of an interesting story. I probably did not have the normal pathway to a large law firm like King and Spalding. Now, I was born in Brunswick, Georgia, which is situated about halfway between Savannah, Georgia and Jacksonville, Florida. It's on the coast of Georgia. And it was at that point in time, the late 60s, a very small, quite frankly, sleepy coastal front town. And it was a wonderful, magnificent place to grow up. There was a lot of fishing. There was a lot to do outside, one of the most beautiful places in the country. Was there. And then for high school, it was decided by my parents and probably the best decision they ever made to let me see a bit of the country and get out of that coastal enclave. And I went to a boarding school about an hour north of New York City by the name of Trinity Pauling. And for those of your listeners who may know about Trinity Pauling, they know it's in the Hudson Valley, just a few clicks up from Poughkeepsie and West Point, beautiful area. What was remarkable about that experience was that I had never seen snow before. And so for those, again, who who are familiar with the Hudson Valley, know that it gets cold and it gets dark at 430 in the afternoon, which is a far cry from coastal Georgia. And so from there, I went to Wake Forest University in Winston-Salem, North Carolina. Great, great experience. And then spent a few years in Washington, D.C., where I worked at the White House for the Bush-Quail administration in 91 and, and 92. Did you have then visions of going on in politics or were you a politics junkie growing up? I was a politics junkie growing up. I was a political science major at Wake Forest, had a White House internship when I was at Wake Forest. And so was sort of, you know, shuttling, if you will, between Washington and in Winston-Salem. And then I worked for a candidate for the Georgia governor's office, a fellow by the name of Johnny Isaacson, who ultimately became a U.S. senator. And so I was always in and around politics. My mother, in fact, was one of the first female legislators in the state capitol in Atlanta. And so it was a topic of some discussion around the dinner table. And so did you consider going on in politics or or trying to make your way in Washington or a couple of years in D.C. cured you of that? It was clearly the latter. I probably had some delusions of grandeur at some point in time, but Bill Clinton came in and swept us out of office, and I quickly realized that I needed a backup plan. And like many folks, I suspect, law school looked like a pretty good backup plan at the time. And plus, I I recognized that I needed some source of income more than what I was making in politics, which was next to nothing. And I had just gotten married as well. And so starting a small family and getting restarted 
after politics was my number one goal. And so uh, that led me to Emory Law School. Your parents had a small business growing up. Tell us about that, what you learned from that experience. That is really interesting. At least for me, it was interesting. They were one of the first franchisees for a new concept, which at that point in time, no one had really heard of by the name of Burger King. And so they were one of the first Burger King franchisees in the system. As I mentioned, growing up on the coast of Georgia, there was an interstate that had just been built through the county and really, quite frankly, all the way from New York to Miami. I-95, as everyone is now familiar with, but at that time, I-95 was brand new. And so they had the territory literally between essentially both borders of the state where I-95 traversed. And so one of the things they did every holiday, you know, every Saturday afternoon was we would be back and forth in the car going to the Burger Kings and working literally in the restaurants. And so that is inherently a people business. And while customers are obviously critical to keep the trains running, what you realize is a multifaceted operation. You've got staff issues, you've got supply issues, you've got a lot of moving pieces in order to make a whopper. And so when that was really fundamental to my growing up, and when you're faced with that as much as we were, my sister and myself, it's it, it creates and really results in quite an impression. And so I think that in many ways was fundamental to how I ultimately decided to get into the practice of law. So a couple of things there. At that point in the 70s and 80s, that would have been or at least had the possibility of being really a growth business in a really significant way, which has tremendous opportunities, but also enormous challenges. As your parents were growing the business, what did you see as the most difficult challenges for them? And what was most appealing to you or maybe not appealing to you about you know watching them build a business? You know, it was really... It's a, it's a great question. And, and, and it changed, like anything, it's dynamic and it changes over time. When we started in the business in 1972, there were two players. There, there was McDonald's and there was Burger King. We ultimately sold our franchise in 1991. And so that was quite a run. And we had a number of stores, as I say, that were sort of dotted along the Georgia coast. What became incredibly challenging, particularly for my parents as they were beginning to grow older, was the constant need to be in the stores and and to be, you know, when we started the business by way of an illustration, there was no such thing as a drive-through. Everyone would come into the stores and eat in the dining room or, or take it to go and essentially eat in the parking lot. And so I remember distinctly putting our drive-throughs into the stores. And so my kids make fun of me today when I tell them those types of stories. So the business was changing by the time we hit 1991 and, and sort of the early 90s, where there was competition on every corner, whether it was a Wendy's, whether it was a new concept and the like. And so that became increasingly difficult. Similarly, Today, your franchisees are not mom and pops. They're large, quite frankly, some are even public companies that have, you know, 100, 200 store franchisee operations. And for the mom and pops, like my mom and dad, it was better just to cash in the chips, as they say, and, and move on to greener pastures. And 
seeing that dynamic growth and seeing the entire growth cycle of that business, and I, and I still sort of follow it just for curiosity purposes, is really interesting to see how that business has changed over time. And look, none of us are immune from that, whether you're in your business, David, or the law business, we constantly have to adapt and, and change. So how did this affect how you viewed working in a law firm from the time you started even as an associate and then as a partner and running a practice, thinking about that practice and, and how it may evolve in the next 5, 10, 15 years? Look, I think fundamentally, there's not a lot of difference between running a Burger King business and a large law practice. And that may sound crazy, but at the end of the day, this is a people business and you've got to have the right people. Similarly, relationships matter and the relationships with your clients matter in in the Burger King parlance, your customers, right? And so... Look, the law business inherently has a lot of smart people. There is a heavy dose of IQ. What I think is missing a lot of the times is the EQ piece of this business. And and so, yes, it will change over time. We saw that during the pandemic. But at the end of the day, inherently, this is all about staffing and client service. And that's what we try to focus on. So how do you teach EQ? I mean, mean, even for entry-level salespeople, there's education required for most of them. There is. And and look, I think, and that's one of the things we've all been challenged as we return back to the office. I really, in fact, I was in a meeting yesterday with a group of associates and this topic came up. And the simple reality is our younger associates, and this is true whether or not you're at King & Spalding or any other law firm, big or small, have in many ways been shortchanged because they have not had that opportunity to develop as we've all been working remotely during the pandemic. And we are slowly returning back to the office. And we are obviously highly supportive of that. We're also cognizant and aware that folks and, and the way they work has changed as a result. And we're trying to strike the right balance. Nevertheless, it is teachable. But it's only teachable when you're, in my view, in a group dynamic and you have the opportunity to cross-pollinate and create that sense of energy, that rub-off effect that you get after you hang up the phone with a client. So, you know, I do think it's teachable, but you've got to be with others and, and doing it remotely is incredibly challenging. And so you went to Emory for law school and then coming out of law school, you went to a law firm. Did you kind of know you wanted to do corporate? And did you think even at that point about going into business rather than practicing law? I think I was always drawn to the business side. I never really gave much consideration to being a litigator or you know, a practice separate and apart from what traditionally would be thought of as a corporate law practice. And so going in, coming out of Emory, going into private practice, I was primarily a capital markets lawyer doing a lot of heavy duty securities work. Over time, that transitioned, as many practices do for folks, into much more of an M&A focused practice. I was fortunate to be introduced to Georgia Pacific, which was a large client of the firm's 
and became very close to their general counsel, deputy general counsel, and their management team as a part of that. And that ultimately led to going in-house at Georgia Pacific for several years, where I, I ran the corporate function for the law department. Again, I'd probably starting back to my days as the head cleaner, if you will, of the dining rooms at a Burger King, I've always been drawn just to the corporate side of the ledger. What did you enjoy about being in-house and what did you learn being in-house that you hadn't learned in your practice? What I really enjoyed, and the folks at Georgia Pacific were fantastic. They were all mentors to me in some form or fashion. What I really enjoyed was the ability to go deep and to focus on one client. Now, there were many in-house clients for various businesses and business lines and divisions and the like. Nevertheless, I got to know what made the business tick, where the challenges were, where the opportunities were. In private practice, you're more of a mercenary in many ways. You parachute in for the big transaction, for the big M&A deal, for the big financing, and then you parachute back out. What I really found attractive about an in-house practice is you could go deep, know the personalities, know the CEO, know the board of directors, and really understand what was making the business tick. Taking that away, going back into private practice, after leaving Georgia Pacific, when Georgia Pacific went private, Coke Industries came in and took us private. I took a lot of those lessons with me. And I think that's probably the most valuable aspect that I took with me, which is a competitive difference. And people always will say, know your client. You got to know your client on a very intimate level. And that is, again, is not only understanding the balance sheet and what makes the operations go, but it's also understanding the personalities involved, the management team and the like, which at the end of the day goes back to our sort of thesis here at some level, what's the common theme of our interview, which is relationships matter, people matter. And I took those relationships away. And to this day, a lot of my relationships from Georgia Pacific, I count to be some of my best and most dearest friends. And so that transition back into private practice from an in-house job can be really challenging. How were you able to make the transition and how long did it take you before you felt comfortable again in a firm setting? It is a challenge. And I do think that's what perhaps makes me a bit unique. Jumping back out of an in-house role into a large law firm role with some success is hard to do. For me, I was lucky. Georgia Pacific, as I mentioned, went private. There were a lot of folks who were near my age who decided to depart, you know, pull their change of control triggers, if you will, and go run other businesses. And so those relationships became clients. And I was able and fortunate enough to go back into private practice with a safety net at some level with clients that knew me, trusted me, had seen me in action. And that really became my landing pad. And a lot of folks aren't as fortunate just because they either haven't formed those relationships or they're just in a different position. And so for me, it was in many ways just luck and I'm grateful for it. So how did the questions you ask of your client and what you're looking for change as a result of your time in-house? How were you a different lawyer after that experience? 
It, I'll tell you, I don't start with a new client without fundamentally understanding their business. And that's more than just reading the latest 10Q. I really try to go deep and understand what the peer group is doing. Again, where the headwinds are, where the opportunities are. The fundamental takeaway I took from Georgia Pacific, and we met frequently as a law department to make sure we had the right law firms on the right matters. And again, this is a broad brush, and I'm sure there are exceptions to it. The days of law firms having institutional clients, I think, are largely over. The world is indeed flat, and there's competition everywhere. And so those relationships are transitory by nature now. And so the point of all of that is you've got to sort of earn your stripes every day and in-house law departments are talking about the law firms that they are using. And those law firms can be switched out pretty readily now. And people are willing to do it. We did it at Georgia Pacific all the time. And so you got to wake up every morning hungry for that. And you've got to understand what is moving the needle in their business. And I, I like to think that's a differentiator. For me, I, I like to do my homework. A lot of it is grit and determination. You know, at the end of the day, persistence and determination is about 90% of life. And so that, for me, has been a winning combination. And when you say going deep on the company, I mean, obviously, reading the 10Ks, Qs, reading whatever is out there, how else do you do that? Does it shape how you interact with the senior management team? Are you kind of looking broadly at what the business you're advising is dealing with? It's all of that. It's all of that. But again, businesses are run by people, David. And I know I sound like a broken record on this. So understanding the management team and what is motivating the management team, understanding who's on the board of directors, why they're on the board of directors, where the skill sets are, and finding entry points there are critically important. Every client is different. Every business is different. But the common denominator to all of that is that they're all housed by people who are just trying to win and succeed. And so understanding where the pressure points are and what, in fact, will move the needle is really where I try to focus and what we try to leverage. And quite frankly, it may not be me. One of the things I think we do particularly well at King of Spalding, and there are a lot of law firms that do it very well, and that gets back to the competition piece is that if there's a need, I may not necessarily be the best person to put on the field. There may need to be someone else and I just take a back seat. I may have a relationship into the client, but it may, it, you know, again, it may require another skill set and more importantly, another personality and a willingness to step back and let others take that is important. And, and again, it's important to the cohesiveness of the team and ultimately the success of the entire organization. And so, Knowing when to raise the hand and say, I'm either the right guy for the job or I'm not, is also an important piece of this. And so I've seen a lot of pitches go bad because people have forced themselves into the pitch that weren't the right fit. With your interest in organizational behavior and how individuals within organizations interact, have you ever considered going to the business side? Or to some extent, do you see yourself as on the business side as it is, given your role at King & Spalding? 
You know, it's funny. I like to think of myself first and foremost as a business guy. It's interesting. So it's probably the latter, David, at some level. While I am a lawyer, I do much more counseling work in many ways that are driven by various business needs, desires, opportunities, and challenges. And so while there's a legal context to all of that, particularly at the board level as you're advising boards of directors, I like to think of myself much more as, uh, quite frankly, a counselor, and it's an overused term. But if you do not have a business hat on doing what I do, you're just not going to be successful. And personally, for most CEOs, in my experience, they don't want to hear from the lawyers. You know, They want someone that understands their needs, their desires, and how to get there and put it into a right context. Again, that gets us back to this EQ piece and understanding what is driving you know, the needs of the client. And so I like to think of myself first and foremost as a business person. And as you look at your own business and your own industry over, say, the next decade, what do you see as the biggest challenges and opportunities? Yeah, again, I think the world is flat. I think the competition is incredibly intense for not only clients, but talent. And the law firms that have the balance sheet, the economics to go get the best talent. And that talent now is in many ways, you know, much like the client bases that I alluded to, that talent now is mobile. And you don't see lawyers necessarily staying at a law firm for their entire career. And so keeping that talent at your shop, at our shop, and keeping that talent appropriately in, in Senate. And that may, look, money is important. There's no question. But at the end of the day, you want people to want to come to work, right? And you want to create the environment where they want to be and that you want to be with folks who think like you, where there's diversity of opinion as well, and they're high performers. And so if you can create that atmosphere, which is incredibly challenging, I think the opportunities on the flip side are tremendous. And that's where, again, clients today are transitory. I go back to that word. They're mobile. And those long-standing institutional relationships, if they haven't broken down already, they themselves are in transition. So that's where the opportunities are as well. But it starts with the people and it starts with building the right culture because culture is the glue that holds the whole thing together. And Again, kind of post hard to know whether we're post-pandemic. <laughs> Two years into the pandemic, given where we are now with a more dispersed workforce, and that varies firm by firm and city by city, how do you foresee creating and maintaining that culture, both for associates and for partners who are in just a significantly more mobile market for legal talent? I think you have to promote, and again, it's easier said than done. You have to promote folks getting on airplanes and getting back to your point. It's hard to see whether or not we're really truly post-pandemic. But I personally miss our partner retreats. We have not had one in a couple of years, but it's simply because of the pandemic. We're going to have one here shortly. There needs to be some personal interaction. That's where the energy comes from. That's where the vibe comes from. That's where culture comes from. And so for, by way of example, I was in our Charlotte office two weeks ago, meeting with our associates there. 
having partners who are willing to go meet with associates in various offices and be the glue, right, that holds a disparate organization across the globe and with respect to King and Spalding together is critical. And you got to have folks who are willing to get on airplanes and go do that and be, again, the culture carriers. That is a challenge when folks have robust practices or trying to build hours and do the things that just keep the lights on. But without, again, the culture, without the people to serve the clients, you know, that's not much of a business model. So again, one person's view is a willingness to get on an airplane, go cross-pollinate and go be supportive of others, both, again, at senior levels, mid-levels, and at lower levels, vertically and horizontally, that's how you're going to win and and uh, certainly what we're trying to do. And then finally, what do you do outside of work? <laughs> when uh, I'm not doing all those great things. So I love, again, probably a vestige of me growing up on the coast of Georgia. I love to fish. Fall is a tremendous fishing season for those of you who are familiar with the Georgia coast. The fall fishing is probably the best there is. This is when the trout are running. It's when the redfish are out. It was just tarpon season last month. And so I love to do that. And then I also like to work on my golf game, David, which is probably as bad as my fishing is. But nevertheless, you know, hope springs eternal. And so you, do you just catch the fish or are you in charge of cooking them as well? <laughs> I, I'll leave it to others. I'll clean and I'll leave it to others to cook. So uh, that's about as far as I go. It's about as far as I go. No one wants me to cook. <laughs> Cal, thank you so much for joining us. David, this was great. Thank you so much for having me. For Drinks with a Deal, I'm David Marcus.